The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Good Monday to you all, ladies and germs. That's not funny anymore. That used to be a funny thing to say, and now germs are the worst, the most terrifying thing on earth. Uh, good Monday, ladies and gentlemen. August the 30th, we're wrapping things up here in the, what I like to call the long month zone of the calendar year. July and August, back-to-back 31ers. Curse you, Summer! You're hot and you're long. Can't complain too much. I live in West L.A. where ultra-hot is like 82, and then overnight it's uh, a frigid, like, 61. So yeah, probably should keep my mouth shut. In any event, welcome to the pod, everybody. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I am your host, Dan Bespris. That hasn't changed. This is off-season pod 76. I'm pretty sure of it. Isn't it? No, oh, no, I did it to myself again. I'll count it up at some point during the show when no one's paying attention. None of you is the wiser. I'll be like talking about Larry Nance, and in the background I'm counting 5, 10, 15. We do have a trade to talk about. On today's show, it's a sign-in trade, but for fantasy purposes, it really doesn't matter how it happens. All that matters for us is what actually happened. We have the continuing saga of the Bespris Buckets. We got through Bucket like a weird 7-8-9 combination on Friday's show. We are now uh, 30, right? 30 players deep in our discussion. We left off at McKill Bridges at the end of our Friday episode of the podcast. We'll keep that going. I had a number of people... Oh, by the way, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I would love it if you did. Um, I've been teetering on the brink here of the 7,000 number. I got as uh, as high as about 7,050 right at the end of the regular season. And then that dropped immediately to 7,000. Like overnight, some of the folks that followed me for fantasy were like, nope, don't even want to think about basketball for the next four months. Well, you made the right decision because I was going to keep talking about it whether you wanted to hear it or not. And then, thanks to some appearances on VSIN, I was able to like push it back up to 7,010, and then it slowly trickled off, and it's at 7,004 right now. So if you're not a part of that, well, I don't know what you're doing these days. <laughs> In any case, it's at Dan Bespris, D-A-N-B-E-S-B-R-I-S. Hoopball on Twitter is at HoopballFantasy, because that's what we do. We have fantasy sports. By the way, I haven't done a shout-out to my guy Anthony Germain in a little bit, the host of the brand new, this offseason, Fantasy NFL today. And I know football's coming up. Isn't opening day next Thursday? So this must be the heat. The real heat leading up to the season. This is football draft season, I think, right now. So if you're in a football league, I'm guessing many of you are. Like, I think I'm the outlier here. The guy that only does fantasy basketball because I want to focus every ounce of my strength on it for six months every year and then, well, eight months if you include draft season and then be able to just kind of dial it back a little bit in the off season. Many of you, I'm sure, do fantasy NFL as well. So please do check out his pod. It's called Fantasy NFL Today. It's available everywhere podcasts are found. We tweeted out from Hoopball Fantasy. His Twitter handle is at Talking Sunday. At some point, I'd like to have him on this show just to tell me a little bit about NFL, but I don't think you guys want to hear that right now. We'll we'll wedge it in at some point in the middle of a future episode. Let's start today's show by breaking down the trade that went down on Friday right 
after I recorded the podcast. I was, Friday was another day where I didn't have any childcare help. Today is another one of those. Oh, boy. I know, man. It's, it's a wonder that I am only like 20% bald at this point. Which, by the way, is still a stressfully high number. But it, you'd think it'd be higher these days. The, uh, the Portland Trailblazers acquired Larry Nance Jr. Effectively for Derek Jones Jr. That's what they saw. Like, they don't need to see in all the directions that the sign-and-trade went. From a player personnel standpoint, Derek Jones Jr. is out of Portland. Larry Nance Jr. is in. Juniors can be swapped, apparently. Also, in the midst of this silliness, the Chicago Bulls performed a sign-and-trade with Larry Markkinen that sent him to the Cleveland Cavaliers. So Markkinen to the Cavs, Jones Jr. to the Bulls, Nance Jr. to the Blazers. You can immediately rule Derek Jones Jr. out of your fantasy discussion. I think you guys probably knew that already. This is one of those, let's just say the very obvious thing uh, and get it out of the way because we don't really need to spend any time on that. The other two players in this trade need to be discussed individually because there's reasons for both pessimism and optimism for each guy, and it's going to be up to us to figure out what we should be doing about them. I want to start with Lowry Markkinen, because you guys know my affection for Larry Nance Jr., although it has admittedly faded pretty considerably lately. Mostly, there's a lot of adverbs in this part of the podcast, because of how banged up he's been. And Brew keeps trying to tell me this, Shout out to the big dog for every year telling me, Dan, if someone asks Larry Nance to play more than 26 minutes a game, he won't make it through the year. And Brew is right, but here's why Brew's actually still kind of wrong. Larry Nance Jr. doesn't make it through the season even if he doesn't play more than 26 minutes a game. He just flat out does not make it through an NBA season. Larry Nance has been to one postseason uh, with the Cavaliers, actually. I think that was the year that they traded for him, the last LeBron season, right? That was part of the whole, like, clear-out salary cap in L.A., give LeBron some guys that he liked in Cleveland, and then also clear out the room to bring him to Los Angeles. And yeah, that was, that was 2017-18, right? Wasn't that the, I think so. In any event, uh, excluding what was actually a relatively healthy postseason run for Nance, where he played about 15 minutes of ballgame that year, his regular seasons... 2015 through this most recent year, which is now 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 regular seasons. He has missed, um, was there a lockout year in there? There might have been. So excuse me if I get one of those numbers wrong. Uh, the He played 63, 63, 66. That was the year he got traded. 67, 56, and then 35. Not only is that trending in the wrong direction, but it never it didn't even start at a good point. Admittedly, 35 is probably the low watermark. I think we can safely assume that on a better team in Portland, he will play through some of the small nagging injury stuff that probably was like, well, what the hell's the point in Cleveland because they're terrible. But even if you add on that, call it a handful, I think you can liberally say four or five games that a guy would play in from a minor injury on a good team that he wouldn't on a bad team, you're still talking about a guy that in his best health season missed 10 ball games. Best. 
That's after you add the additional five. And the first few seasons of his career, first three or four years, he wasn't on a tanking team. He was on a team that ultimately did turn out to be tanking, and he didn't play a ton of minutes. Since he's been a full-time starter, which is effectively the three years after LeBron left the Cavaliers, Nance played 27-26, and then this season, 31 minutes per ballgame. His usage, oddly enough, actually went down this year, despite the higher minute total, and a lot of other stuff kind of went down with it. So this is a guy that, at least when you, were, when you extrapolated, when you went per 36 style on him, he always profiled as a top 50 per 36 guy. He just never got to those 36 minutes. The reason we assumed he was not going to be a... I guess that uh, we can affectionately call them a level offer. Guys that they play like 25 minutes a game and every additional minute almost does nothing to them. Those are the guys that come off the bench and just go buck wild for 26 minutes a ball game. Where if someone, where if a coach came to them and was like, hey, play 32 tonight, they'd probably just dial it back and do about the same amount of stuff in 32 minutes on that night or over the course of a season, maybe is a better example, than if they were being told, you're going to play 26 minutes every night, so just go ham when you're on the floor. The one category where that did not hold for Nance this year was steals. Those did actually go up with his additional minutes on the floor. Everything else pretty much leveled off. The 27-minute-per-game iteration of Larry Nance was effectively the same Nance you got in 31 minutes per game. And he started increasing his number of three-pointers, moving his field goal percent lower. This is not meant to be a knock session on Larry Nance because as disappointing as this year was, and missing 37 ball games was extraordinarily disappointing, and shooting 61% at the free throw line, which was a career low for Nance in any regular season. He'd never been below 63 in his half season with the Lakers four and a half years ago. And most of the time, he's around 68 to 73 range. And despite shooting a career worst 47% from the field, he was still a top 75 asset on the season. So this was very much a worst-case scenario for Nance this last season in Cleveland. The kind of funny thing is, if you turn the clock back to the prior year, where he was only playing 26 minutes a game, five fewer minutes per ball game, he was still inside the top 85. So the extra five minutes... I mean, we're talking about... That's a 20% bump in playing time, and it had almost no market impact on his fantasy numbers. In fact, the... If you uh, sort of account for the fact that he had a weird career-low swipes season last year, he actually would have been better last year in five fewer minutes. And the, the shimmering example of that is actually two seasons ago when he played 27 minutes per ball game and got his usual steals numbers. He was number 55 in Cleveland that year. So that's why when we came into this last season, I was really high on Larry Nance, a guy who seemingly, with Kevin Love still, like, DNP out of shape, and they didn't have Jared Allen yet. Andre Drummond was uh, sitting. There were all these reasons to look at Larry Nance and go, oh my god, this guy's going to absolutely rip things apart. 
But for whatever reason, field goal percent, free throw percent, all of that stuff went down the toilet. Uh, rebounds went down, but that was a, a bit more expected because he was playing mostly power forward next to Jared Allen and even sometimes small forward. So you're just not going to get as many rebounds when you're playing that position on the floor. Still, what this does tell us is what we've kind of always known about Nance, is that if Larry Nance gets 24 minutes of basketball per ball game at a preferred position on the floor, meaning power forward or center, preferably center, he can get inside the top 100. The problem, as I see it, is that even if we believe the answer to that question is yes, and I think it probably is, ain't no way he's playing 31 minutes a game in Portland, but if the question is just can he get 24 minutes a game with the Blazers, I think the answer to that is yes. My fear is that we don't really want Larry Nance at 24 minutes a game. Even if Larry Nance is, you know, number 99 in nine category leagues in 24 minutes a ball game, whatever that gets him to, like eight and a half points, six and a half rebounds, one and a half steals, three assists, you know, 51 from the field, 72 at the free throw line, and very low turnovers, that's a that's an extremely low upside play. And we're talking about a guy who misses 15 or more games seemingly every single damn season. I think we can probably just wipe him off the board in head-to-head leaks. His durability issues make him a non-starter in a head-to-head format. He's going to do more harm to your team than good because you're going to be constantly thinking, do I really need to hold on to this top 95, 105 range guy if he's going to miss the next two weeks? And you're going to be like, well, yeah, I guess he's been good enough. I'm going to leave him on my team. And then you're going to take two weeks of zeros. And by the time he comes back, someone else on your team is going to be hurt. And then Nance is going to be hurt again. And it's a whole damn spiral. And I'm losing control. So head-to-head, I think you can just wipe him off the board. Roto, there's a discussion to be had here. On Twitter, I said I thought that this trade was bad news for Larry Nance. It's probably not doom for Larry Nance, but I do still believe that it is somewhat bad news. He was top 75 this year, playing 31 minutes of ballgame for the Cavs. He's not going to get that much run. You, if you wanted to argue with me and say, Dan, I think he's going to get close to that number, you could still make an okay argument. Yusuf Nurkic is probably going to have to take some games off. Cody Zeller is there as a potential backup center. Rob Covington is your starting power forward, but there isn't really a backup four. So you're kind of talking about now a combination of four guys for the Blazers playing most of the power forward and center minutes. Yusuf Nurkic, Cody Zeller, Rob Covington, and now Larry Nance Jr. They have Harry Giles on the roster, but he's buried way down the bench. They have Tony Snell, who could slide up and play some small ball four, and it's possible that he does see a little bit of action there. It's also uh, not a great scoring lineup to throw Nance in there alongside Yusuf Nurkic. It's, it's workable because Larry's a good passer, but in the modern NBA, you kind of want your four to be able to slide out and mostly hit three-pointers, And even though Nance did start to add that to his game, it's still not really a feature part of what he's doing on the basketball court. So while we'd love to just point and say, hey, you know, there's some power forward minutes available, which is true, it's going to have to be in the right setting. 
I, don't, I mean, I legitimately don't know how. Like the Cavaliers pulled it off, but they also were offensively terrible. Portland does need more defense, so there's that argument. All right, so let's say Yusuf Nurkic is mostly in shape, but not fully in shape. I think Portland's goal is probably to have him around 28, 29 minutes per ballgame. That still does leave a solid 8, 19, 20 minutes of backup center. Does, does Zeller play any of those? I think we have to assume he plays a little bit. Is he buried so far? I... Is he buried so far down the depth chart that he's just DNPing every night if it's not a blowout? It's possible, but it's not probable. Which, like, you know, the the math just tells us there sort of aren't enough minutes at the right spots on the floor. I don't think Larry Nance is playing any small forward in Portland. I know they were willing to try it in Cleveland, but... That's a that's a terrible fit. What are they going to do? Play him next to Rob Covington? I guess Covington then slides down to the three. Nance at power forward and Nurkic at center? I don't know, man. I guess. You could try it. Piecemeal it together. See what happens. Along with Dame and CJ, and that's when Norman Powell is on the bench. It's going to have to be little slices of minutes for Nance to get up to where we would need him to be. So now let's talk Roto for a minute because that's the only way you're looking at him anyway. In a Roto league where I've got to assume he's a guy who's probably going to get drafted in the 125-130 range, I think I'm probably still willing to at least take a peek at him in that neck of the woods because he, on a per-game basis, is likely to be profitable in that spot. And in the games where Nurkic is out, he'll be an easy profit. I think Nurk will be better this year if he misses 15 games or something like that. Like, that's not really enough reason to hold Nance for an entire season if you're just going to drop him in for those 15 starts, if he even starts in those games. But, you know, let's say Rob Covington misses a couple here and there. So there's there's a little bit of upside built in around the fact that Nurk in particular is not a particularly healthy player. Neither is Cody Zeller. Neither is Larry Nance. But they become this sort of three-way banged-up center rotation where if one of the three is out on any given night, they still have enough Portland does to push their way through. So I think Larry Nance is probably sitting on somewhere in the neck of 24 to 25 minutes per ball game, which does squeak him ever so slightly inside the top 100 and makes him a reasonable roto grab in the 125-130 range, understanding that by totals, he's probably worse than that top 100 mark. By totals, he probably doesn't make it unless he magically has his first healthy season in What's the meme? Checks notes. His career. What about on the other side of the ledger? What about Lowry Markinen? Because he's a really interesting study in a guy who just sort of... He looked like he was going to be something interesting for Chicago. Jim Boylan came in, broke the kid, and then the Bulls went out and... Actually, Markinen started this last season not that horribly. He was playing 30 minutes of ballgame at the beginning of the year. Remember, he was actually logging around 30 minutes a game until basically, well, the all-star break, but he was hurt for a long stretch during that first half as well. When he was healthy, this is actually really important, guys. I want you guys to whatever you, stop whatever you're doing, and you can do it with me if you want. Set the date range on your calendar to basically pre-all-star break or something in that neck of the woods. So like opening day, which was uh, December 22nd this last year, 
to early February. What was Markkinen putting up during those... That was about 15 games for him because he missed, remember, four or five, six weeks with an injury. During those 14 games for Markkinen, he averaged 19-6 and six with three three-pointers on 51% shooting from the field and 84% at the free-throw line. The problem was he just wasn't even close to as good as Nikola Vucevic. And a lot of guys aren't. He's also not very good defensively, which the Cavs are actually not bad on defense, but desperately needed someone who could go out there and do a little something on offense. They got a glimpse of that with Kevin Love playing a couple of games at the end of the year. I think we have to assume, I don't think this is a hot take to say, I I don't even know if Kevin Love shows up this season. He basically just told the Cavs he's not interested in a buyout. They're posturing with one another. Love isn't going to want to just sit on the bench and not play for two full seasons. He's going to claim that he's willing to until they find a number that's small enough where Kevin Love gets sent out of Cleveland somehow. So I really don't think he's playing at all. Maybe a tiny bit, but probably, I don't say probably, uh, possibly not at all. So I'm not really worried about the Kevin Love effect. Uh, You do have to uh, uh, worry a little bit about the uh, rookie situation in Cleveland. I know I I have to sort of pretend to not know what's going on, but I know they did draft a seven-footer named Evan Mobley with uh, the third pick overall. He's going to play somehow. But luckily for us, we can pull up the Cleveland Cavaliers roster and we can just figure out where the minutes fit. It's actually uh, easier to me than on the Portland side because the Cavs have shown a willingness to play big people together even when it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And the big guy Cleveland brought in is a floor-spacing, offensive-minded big man who could very easily play power forward despite being a seven-footer. That being Markkinen. I mean, I'd rather have Larry Nance on my team, but if you're going for the young fella with some upside, there's there's an argument to be made there. I've seen a lot of people on the internet say, why would you bring in Larry Markkinen if you're about to develop Evan Mobley? And that makes a lot of sense, because Mobley's a center, Jared Allen's a center, Larry Markkinen was basically playing center, but could very well be a power forward. Isaac Okoro has been the small forward on this team, but at 6'5", 225, he could play some power forward if they really wanted him to. My assumption here is that this move was made with the goal of getting Kevin Love gone. And I don't know if that means just not playing him, trading him, buying him out after this back and forth, but I don't think we have to worry about Kevin Love taking up a bunch of minutes this year. I just don't think he's going to play. Which leaves 96 power forward and center minutes to split among Jared Allen, Evan Mobley, and Lowry Markinen. And then if they desperately wanted to to slide Isaac Okoro up to the four, they could maybe do that. I don't know. I'm going to leave that, actually. I'm going to leave that in the podcast. I don't know if you guys could hear that, but that was my son, Asher, whispering I love you, Daddy, into the microphone. So you know what, damn it? That makes me feel good. So I'm leaving it in the show, and you guys are going to have to listen to it. He's a good boy. Doesn't really know what a record button means, but that's okay. What does this all mean taken together? Oh, no, I'm not worried about Dean Wade coming in and taking their playing time either, by the way. He's already 24. It's not... Yeah. Well, 96 minutes split three ways is 32. And if we assume that, say, Isaac Okoro gets like eight 
of his minutes at the power forward spot on any given ball game, that just turns 96 into 88, and that's still basically 30 minutes apiece. I don't know that the Cavaliers are necessarily just going to play Evan Mobley for 30 minutes right out of the shoot. He's only 20, which is older than some coming out of college, but there's going to need to be some time for him to figure out the NBA game. He's probably their backup center behind Jared Allen, and it'll probably be something like a 28-20 split at the beginning of the year, and you'll probably see Mobley play more as the season goes on. But at the very beginning of the year, if, if Love is out, sitting it out the way I kind of expect him to, Larry Markkinen ends up as the starting power forward on this team with a very clear path to about 30 minutes of basketball game, which, as we just saw in Chicago, to bring this discussion full circle, put him inside the top 65 during that stretch of basketball games. One of the things with Markkinen that's just not going anywhere is he doesn't put up defensive stats. It doesn't happen. He's been in the NBA for four seasons already. He averages .7 steals and half a block in about 30 minutes per ball game. But, as we saw right at the beginning of his career, by the way, he added his best field goal percent season of his career this last season. So it's also conceivable that he's beginning to kind of figure out that part of the ballgame. He's not a bad rebounder. He'll be fighting with Jared Allen for a lot of those boards, so that'll depress that number a little bit. But he's going to score. He's going to get shots. He's going to take a bunch of three-pointers. If he's really out there playing 30 minutes, you're probably looking at a top 75 to top 90 range guy who... I don't know. By all accounts, the reporting I'm seeing on this, on the fantasy analysis side, is that people don't think he has it in the tank, and they don't believe necessarily that he's going to get enough playing time to do it. He's not my favorite kind of roto player. I'll be totally honest with you guys there. He's a good free throw percent guy, but his field goal percent has been a pretty big drag on his number, and he doesn't do anything in the defensive stats. Of my four favorite categories, he's only good in one of them. But if he's floating around in your draft, around pick 90 or something like that, you probably consider it. In Roto, in head-to-head, I don't know that you can. Dude hasn't played more than 52 games in the last three seasons. He has the same issue that Larry Nance does, which is we've never actually seen this guy, Larry or Laurie. Have we seen them in the same place at the same time? Larry and Larry... Have we seen them make it through a season? No, not in one piece. Larry Markkinen is another guy you probably cannot draft in a head-to-head league, but in Roto, if he's falling, and we'll find out when we get our our look at ADPs at some point here in the next couple of weeks from Yahoo, when they open things up. I think they may have even opened up this last weekend. When they actually start giving us some data soon of early, early, early drafts, and we see... Where is Markkinen going? I mean, if he's going at like 65, you're not going to take him there because that's kind of a best-case scenario. But if he's falling because he was bad this last year, missed a bunch of time, ended up sitting on the bench, not getting to do very much, if people remember that Markkinen and not the one who came into the league and right out of the shoot put up 15-8 and eight with two three-pointers a game, and that was a number that continued up, he was around three three-pointers this year before that early season injury then there is a way that he's a guy who once again puts up, you know, 17, 18 points, seven rebounds, half a steal, half a block, womp womp, really good free throw shooting. He's, dare I say, new Kevin Love on that Cavs team. Oh, Kevin, you're not willing to get in shape and play? We're just going to bring in this other Kevin Love 
at least from a fantasy perspective, they do profile pretty damn similarly. Love a much better rebounder. But otherwise, that bleep matches up pretty close. Bad field goal percent, great free throw shooting, takes a lot of three-pointers, gets to the line, love more than Markinen, but, you know, both guys actually can get to the free throw line a little bit. Put up some points, no defensive stats, can't pass. <laughs> love passed better. That's not fair. Kevin Love is a better passer. But still, you guys catch my meaning here. It's a big man, it's a floor-spacing big who can rebound all right, score relatively well, and doesn't do a whole lot else at this point. But one of them is a decade younger than the other and seems excited to play and just got paid a ton of money with almost no real reason to do so. (laughs) Why are you giving this guy so much money, Cleveland? That was nuts. But anyway, doesn't matter for for our perspective. From a fantasy standpoint, he's a guy that I would consider drafting in a Roto League. We just have to see when that might be happening. That trade discussion took longer than expected, so we're just going to get to a handful of our fantasy players, and we left off at pick number 31, which is not pick 31. I got to make sure I choose my words properly here. This is an audio-only podcast, after all. It is player 31 on the uh, Bespris rank list, which, again, very quickly here for those that did not listen last week or did listen but kind of forgot the way this is working, my rank list is... All of this is still going to change because it's... August 20, uh, what the hell is it? August 30th now. And, you know, names are going to move around. I'm going to be adjusting bodies a little bit. It's probably not massive things unless guys get moved. And obviously I got to move Larry Markinen and, and Larry Nance in this one. This is the pride list. This is the, hey, this is where I think guys are going to end up. I'll, you know, this is how we wave our banner in the air at the end of the year and say, look, we had them. And then the buckets, which is what we're all building here in real time on the podcast, that's including the public data, meaning we will move guys down our bucket board based on where we think they might, or up, or up, based on where we think they might be getting drafted. That's to help us maximize the area under the curve. Anyway, player 31 is Zach Levine, who, this even might still be too high, and that sucks because he turned a massive corner this year, Levine, Uh, Did miss 14 games, a lot of that for COVID protocol at the end of the season. He was number 25 on a per-game basis, but shot 51% from the field, career high, 85% at the free-throw line, which he's always been a pretty good foul shooter, on 19.5 shots per ball game. I just, even if you try to make the argument that things aren't going to change for him that much with DeMar DeRozan and Nikola Vucevic there for the entire season there, I, I don't know how you can in good faith, say that it won't have any impact at all. And I don't think that he can get more efficient than he was this last season. Like, this is a guy who takes a ton of three-pointers. Three-pointers, a lot of dunk. I mean, he he's a hell of a scorer from almost everywhere on the floor. He's uh, an unbelievable freak athlete. Really came into his own. But, like, how much higher than 51% do we really think he can get from the field? This is a This is a wing. This is a shooting guard. I don't think he's going any higher than that. This was a great scoring offensive season for Zach Levine. His job is just going to get smaller. Even if it's one shot, two shots, whatever, that makes a difference. 27.5 points per game. If you, right now, 
He's around one and a half points per field goal attempt. If you just scale everything down by like 10%, suddenly he's at 24 and change points per game. He's at three three pointers instead of three and a half. He's at uh, four assists instead of five. Is that right? No, 10%. Four and a half assists instead of five. The. And, and with field goal percent free throws, I don't think those go up anymore. So you're just pulling away from some of his best fantasy categories. Four of them, potentially. If you take away a couple of free throw, or a couple fractions of a free throw attempt, make it four and a half instead of five. If you take away from his field goal percent impact, his assist impact, his three impact, his scoring impact, I mean, that is... That is a crushing blow to someone who was really coming into their own. So to put him at 31 is mostly because I don't think he loses 8, 9, 10, 11 games to COVID again this coming season. He's actually shown himself after the ACL thing. He's been pretty durable lately, which is saying something because guys in the NBA, like it's it's NBA level durability at this point, which to figure out how many games guys are going to miss. But he did a lot of his missing because of that. So let's assume that, well, I mean, I guess in Chicago he hasn't really played in a, a, a true full season. But let's assume that he gets back to, like, 70 to 73 games played on the season, which will put him pretty damn close to league average. And if his per game is, like, in the 35 to 40 range, which I think is a very real possibility, putting him at 31 may even be a little bit too high. And a guy that I potentially slide down ever so slightly. But for now, we're going to put him in bucket nine, which is where we had Tobias Harris, Rashawn Holmes, and Mikhail Bridges. And I just, I, I don't think we're going to end up with too many Zach Levines. And I think we're probably going to end up moving some of those guys farther down the board as we continue to see where these guys are actually getting drafted by the public. At uh, pick number 32, or pick, I keep doing that. At player number 32 is Chris Middleton, who finished at number 18 this year, playing in 68 out of 72 ball games. I don't think he plays in 78 out of 82 games this year, and that's basically why he's not inside the top 20 for me. I love his fantasy game. He's incredibly reliable, right around the 40 marker. He'll probably be right back there again this year. He's shown himself to be extraordinarily durable. Other than the one big injury, he's out there and he plays until they force him off the court for a rest day, which he'll get a couple this year because they're the reigning champs, and that's something we have to keep in mind. But if he's around top 40 and he plays three or four more games than the league average, that puts him in the early 30s. So I actually really like him in this area as a final ranking. This is, by the way, trying to decide, looking at my buckets here, where I want to put these dudes, this is crazy difficult to do on the fly. So again, I want to make sure that between shows, I, I come to you guys and I let you know who I've kind of shifted from place to place. Um, I'll do two more, maybe two or three more here, and then we can wrap things up. Uh, number 33 on my board is Brandon Ingram, and he's another guy that I think probably ends up getting moved down my board a little bit. He was number 51 on a per-game basis last year. And the Pels largely sent stuff away, but I don't know that I see Ingram getting more than 18 shots per ball game. And his steals and blocks came back down around his career mark after the weird season where the steals jumped up finally in a way we kind of thought they might eventually, but then they now went away. 
this is who he is. 24, 5, and 5 is a strong number, but because of the lack of defensive stats, there's just not too many other places for him to go. He's really fixed his free throw stroke. Shot 88% at the foul line this year. That's crazy good. Turnovers weren't that bad, but the steals and blocks just sort of weren't there. And the points per game wasn't an overwhelming number. Do I think he'd get up to 19 shots this year? I, d- I don't know where they're coming from. Zion's not about to take less. So Ingram probably is more like a top 50 guy. He's also someone who gets a little banged up from time to time. And I'm, I'm actually just going to take his name right now on our board, and I'm going to slide him down a few slots. This is, this is too high for him. He's a pretty safe play. He's a pretty safe play, but he's also just not an exciting one. So let's we'll come back to Ingram. I'm going to slide him down to number 37 on my board for now. Um, and just, to, just so there's a place to put him, just so we remember we talked about him, I'm going to put Brandon Ingram in bucket 10, and he'll probably get moved out of that at some point in the not-too-distant future as well. We moved him down, but I'm still going to only do two more names. Number 33 on my board is Donovan Mitchell. He was number 46 on a per-game basis this year, but he was weirdly hurt. Uh, Not a guy who's usually all that beat up. He had a a brutally low... I guess that's not entirely fair. That's kind of who he's been. His field goal percent uh, has been relatively low throughout his career. It's not something that's going to get picked up at any point soon. He had one, that that crazy postseason run, I guess it was a bubble run, where he shot 53%. But over the course of his career, he's basically been a 44% field from the field kind of guy took a crap ton of three pointers this year 8.7 per ball game good foul shooter good score team that got better so he didn't have to do quite as much stuff but also he's a bit dinged up this year prior to that he played 69 77 and 79 games and the 69 was out of 72 so this is the first season really where donovan mitchell has not been a pillar of health and for that reason I'm okay with moving him back to where someone who is healthy would normally go. So I'm going to put Donovan Mitchell actually in bucket nine with some of those other guys. And, and we may end up splitting up some of these names as we move forward. But Donovan Mitchell's a super easy guy to handicap. He's going to do the same thing this coming year that he just did, which is 26-4-5. and five, Just a tiny bit better than Brandon Ingram on the per-game basis, largely because... Uh, Mitchell gets one steal per game and a little bit more in the three-pointer department than Ingram does, uh, and better on my board because I think Donovan Mitchell probably plays five more games this year than Ingram does. And the last name today, because we did spend most of the show talking about the trade, um, is Demonis Sabonis, who uh, is at number 34 on my board, and that may even be a bit on the low side. Demonis was number 26 on a per-game basis this year, he's the durability element is the reason that he's not through the roof in terms of where he might get or where he should get drafted. And I reserve the right to actually slide him up the board a little bit. Uh, He's missed 10 games each of the last two years. He missed eight the two years before that, and then just won his first season in, in Oklahoma City. Since he's been playing big minutes, he's missed 10 games apiece in each of those two years, which is basically league average. So that's okay. His job potentially um, could shrink a little bit. I think his steals were weirdly high this year, and they probably don't stick next season. But 2012 and, you know, call it five or six assists per game is pretty repeatable for him. 
That puts him inside the top 50 on a per-game basis easily. And if the assists stay in the six range, that adds another half a round of value. And if the steals stay at one, that adds another half round of value. So every little thing he does, and he had half a three-pointer more this year than the previous season, so that's another half round of value. So all that little stuff gets him to where he was. I, again, I don't think the steals stick at 1.2 per game. So the top, basically inside the top 30 on a per-game basis probably comes back a little bit because T.J. Warren is going to take a little bit away. Karis LeVert being healthy all year is going to take a little bit away. But Sabonis is good, man. He's just good, and they've built themselves around his offensive game. So it's not like things are going to really move away from him. His usage ends up in passes relatively often, which that's good because TJ Warren is not a primary ball handler. Demonis Sabonis could still get his assists to TJ. But let's say he slides from 26 back towards like number 35 on a per-game basis. If he's missing about 10 games, well, ta-da, that's why we have him around number 34. To me, he's not worthy of getting into bucket eight, which was Nurk, Drew Holiday, Clint Capella, DeAndre Ayton. He's not quite as valuable to me as like the upside built into those guys. To me, it's easier to see Capella repeat what he did this last year Nurk, we probably can slide down because I think people are soured on him a little bit, especially now with Portland bringing Larry Nance into the mix. So let's move Nurk down a bucket a little bit. Um, And so bucket eight now gets sort of a little bit more narrow. And DeAndre Ayton has the the durability bridge here that Demonis Sabonis doesn't have, even though Sabonis actually was far better on a per-game basis. I think we can probably put him in bucket nine as well. And what I'll do for you guys now between shows is I want to go through this number nine bucket and start to guess who the public isn't going to like. But here's the problem. I don't want to move, say, Rashawn Holmes down to bucket 10 and find out later the public is taking him at 30 and have to move him back up into bucket nine. It's too much math to do after, sort of post-facto kind of stuff. So I'm going to leave guys higher when we're doing this live adventure together on the podcast. I'm going to leave guys in the slightly higher bucket, and if the public hates them, then we'll move those guys down a little bit farther. We already did it a little bit with some of these guys, right? We assumed the public was not going to be all that high on, say, like Tobias Harris. So we already moved him down into bucket nine, even though he's a guy who could very easily be inside the top 25 this year. Very easily could be inside the top 25, which would put him in bucket seven or bucket eight on our thing. But I'm not going to move him any farther than that until we see where he's getting drafted. And it's the similar thing with Chris Middleton, with Demonis Sabonis here, who I should, you know what? I'm going to move Sabonis back into bucket eight because I think he's a guy that could end up getting drafted earlier than we expect. So we'll make these little adjustments between shows. We'll do some tweaking. But at the end of the day, we cannot place them in their final bucket resting spot until we see Yahoo ADP information. And uh, that's where we're going to pull the plug. We we effectively did five names, even though I did move Brandon Ingram down my actual board a bit because just talking about him and looking at his numbers, I realized, wait a minute, I don't want this guy here. And that's going to happen sometimes as well. I'm going through this. I'm building it. I did a first pass. That's where we started. And now we're doing it together so you guys can kind of be part of the process. 
And I hope that's fun for you. I know many of you tune in and you're just like, Dan, give me the answers to the test. But I want you guys to see how I get to. I'm showing my work. This is how we get to the answers on the test. There's a lot of adjusting, a lot of jimmying, a lot of waiting on information. And then that's when we swoop. That's when we really finalize the buckets and start to figure out the order that we take these guys in drafts and not just where they're going to end up. Have a lovely Monday, everybody. My voice is tired. I'm sure your ears are. I am Dan Bespris for Fantasy NBA Today. Hit me up on Twitter if you want to start a podcast. Hope to hear from you. Later. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.